Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, the trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hi. How's it going? Yeah, it's good. I'm sticky. It's sticky here. <laughs> I mean, heat-wise. Like, I'm not, I haven't, like, doused myself in molasses or anything like that, but. You weren't, weren't making a big batch of slime. <laughs> And then I just did, you, you, and I forgot to all your mom's my- contact solution and <laughs> Elmer's glue to make yeah. yourself a batch of slime. You know what? One day I'm going to do that. It looks like it's fun. It looks fun. And they se- don't the kids still sell it? Do they, these kids these days, do they still like sell it in school? I think stuff? they sell it in school, but they're not allowed to anymore uh, or something like that. Yeah. That's very that's, tricky. Yeah. We should start a slime business. <laughs> all right. There's, there's, this whole podcast thing doesn't work out. We're making slime. Going to slime. Slime on the side. Well, the slime thing is also big on uh, Instagram. Oh, sure. So like it's like ASMR where people like stick yeah, their okay. fingers in it and stuff. Yeah, so. that seems fun. So, oh, wow. but I'm I wasn't making slime. I'm just okay. too warm. So, well, you know what else is fun besides making slime? Going down like Wikipedia holes. Oh my gosh, it's my favorite. Okay. thing. Okay, I don't even know how I ended up here. Oh, okay. Have you ever heard of the shed at Dolwich? I don't even understand the words you just said. What did okay. you just say? The shed. Okay. At Dolwich. Dolwich. D-U-L-W-I-C-H. No, I have never right, heard of this. Before. So ready. Um, this was a restaurant in London that was Ooh. the top rated restaurant in London on TripAdvisor that was open for one night in November 2017. What? Um, so this is a spoof restaurant. So what happened was there was this journalist named Uba Butler who worked for Vice Magazine. And he was like so tired of seeing people like pay for good reviews on like Yelp and TripAdvisor and all this stuff. So he like by word of mouth paid his friends to like um, post fake reviews for this restaurant that he named The Shed at Dulwich, which was like behind his house. Oh my God, yeah. And so it was like, it was at one point like the top rated um, restaurant a trip advisor oh my gosh um and it, like people were bombarding him for bookings so he staged a genuine opening night for the restaurant um he basically served like dollar store meals to the Are customers you serious? yeah and um they were all they were all blindfolded and led down the oh alley past his house to the end of the garden and to the shed like it was this crazy thing and then he immediately came out and was like yeah i made this all yeah. up it's a hoax like like ratings aren't real oh my gosh so I love the story so much. That's crazy. That's a real emperor's new clothes kind of situation. Very much so. Like yeah. you're like, oh yes, I really do taste the. Mm. One of the one of the items on the menu was supposed to be empathetic vegan clams no. in clear broth with <laughs> parsnips, carrots, celery, and tomatoes. Oh my mm, gosh! You really, just get really get the empathy here. I'm really and tasting this, empathy this here. Vegan clams <laughs> from the dollar store. That's so, disgusting. Yeah, it's so funny. So, um, I kind of you know, spawned off of that. And I really want to talk about a bunch of different historical hoaxes. (gasps) I love that. So a hoax. Yes. What is a hoax? Like what's, what do we define that as? Yeah. So it's a falsehood deliberately fabricated to masquerade as the truth. So really like a hoax is considered to be different from like a magic trick or from fiction, sure. like a book or a movie, because the audience is then like kind of aware of what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Hoaxes have been intended as a practical joke or to cause embarrassment or to provoke social and political change. Um, And they can also emerge from a marketing or advertising purpose. So today I'm not really planning to talk about magic tricks or propaganda or fake news or urban legends. I'm talking about like documented hoaxes throughout history in a couple of different categories. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. This is going to be great. All right. (laughs) So first we're going to cover some anthropology. Um, So let's head back to 18th century England and we'll meet Mary Toft. Have you okay. heard of her? I have not. Mary Toft was an English woman born in 1701 from Galdaming, Surrey, who in 1726 became the subject of considerable controversy when she tricked doctors into believing that she had given birth to rabbits. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, oh, rabbits? So like plural? Rabbits, like bunnies. Yep, bunny Oh rabbits. my gosh. Okay, so it's 17, you know, 18th century England. So Mary Toft was married to Joshua Toft, who was a clother, and they had three children. So she was pregnant with a fourth child when she had a miscarriage. And soon after, a local doctor named John Howard came to see her after hearing in the town that she had actually birthed some parts of animals. Oh, okay. Damn. So according to a contemporary account in 1726, over the next few days in November, um, the doctor delivered, quote, three legs of a cat of a tabby color uh, and one leg of a rabbit. The guts were as a cat's and in them were three pieces of a backbone of an eel. The cat's feet supposed were formed in her imagination from a cat she was fond of that slept on the bed at night. Wha- so they were like, they're like, you know, clearly nobody knows how bodies work. No. And they're like, she came across a rabbit in a garden and that's why she's giving birth to rabbit parts. Um, That just goes to show what the thin line between like, Men were so terrified of women at this point <laughs> in time that they were like, she just, she's a witch. Like, yep. we're all just she borderline witches. And now that's why she's given, uh, she's uh, having some cat parts eject f- from her uh, womb. And it's like people, they were all like, yeah, that makes yes. sense. Yes. Sure. So, um, so she became ill kind of over and over across the next few days and delivered more pieces of rabbit. So this is more like, this isn't like, Bam, here's 17 yeah. live rabbits that came out of this woman. It's like, here's a piece of a rabbit and Ugh, a piece of cat. God. It's like very gross That's once gross. you get into it. So the story became more widely known and a member of the court of King George I named Henry Davenant went to see for himself what was happening. So it's the middle of November and the British royal family were so interested in the story that they sent several other court members to investigate and they were not disappointed. <laughs> so arriving on November 15th, they were taken to see Mary Toft who within hours delivered a rabbit's torso. Oh my God. Um, a doctor, Nathaniel Saint-André, performed a medical examination on Toft and concluded that the rabbits were bred in her fallopian tubes. Of course. Yes. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, what is a medical word that we are aware of? <laughs> <laughs> the fallopian tube. Yes, the rabbits came from there. So about a month later, the hoax was finally uncovered. Um, there was a baron who began an investigation of his own and discovered that for the past month, Toft's husband, Joshua, had been buying young rabbits at oh, markets. Oh, what a surprise. Um, so Mary was pressure to confess so following her miscarriage and while her cervix permitted access oh an no accomplice had inserted into no. her womb oh god the claws and body of a cat <gasps> and the head of a rabbit so they and in, they invented a story in which she claimed during her pregnancy while working in a field she'd been startled by a rabbit and had since become obsessed with rabbits and then for later ejections from her womb animal parts had been like inserted into her so like at some point like while her body was still still dealing with the aftermath of yeah they Uh put like like what Uh so that's how you get an infection i don't care uh, who you are yeah i don't even want 
No hand washing techniques Ugh. back then. They and what? Why? Tell me why yeah. were they shoving animal parts? So she blamed the whole thing on a range of other participants in her life, from her mother in law to the like the town doctor John Howard himself. Jesus. So she also claimed that a traveling woman told her how to insert the rabbits into her body mm-hmm. and how such a scheme would ensure she would never want as long as she lived. So they were like, "Oh, you know what." You would make a lot of money off this. Like a get rich quick Yeah, basically. Like a very strange, very weird thing. So um, in 1797, she appeared at the court of quarter sessions at Westminster and was charged for being an abominable cheat and imposter and pretending (laughs) to be delivered of several monstrous births. And following the hoax, the medical profession's gullibility became the target of a great deal of public mockery. Yeah, as well as you can imagine. So Mary Toft... The lady who gave birth to a bunch of rabbits, 1726. Oh, that's a hoax. <laughs> that was. A <laughs> oh, my God. I hope you do that sound effect after everyone. I That was not as cute and cuddly as oh, I was expecting. Sorry. I No, no. Please don't apologize. You know, I love I gross make it shit up. like this. But wow, what the dedication she had of yeah, just like, like a whole month of just like, yeah, we'll stick them up there. Body parts. Uh, well, no. Here we go. Okay, hit me. Humans still doing weird things with animal carcasses. And then mid-19th century, we meet a Fiji mermaid. (gasps) Oh, I've heard of this. Okay, so a Fiji mermaid is an object comprising the torso and head of a juvenile monkey sewn to the back half of a fish. So this was a common feature of sideshows, um, and it was presented as a mummified body of a creature that was supposedly half mammal and half fish, like a mermaid. Oh, hey. So um, the son of a man who had bought a Fiji mermaid from a Japanese sailor in 1822 sold it to Moses Kimball of the Boston Museum in 1842. So Kimball brought the Fiji mermaid to New York City that summer to show it to famed showman and purveyor of curiosities. P.T. Barnum. Love him. Before agreeing to exhibit the Fiji mermaid, Barnum had a naturalist examine it. And the naturalist, noticing that the teeth and fins of the creature, he could not conceive how it would have been manufactured. But not believing in mermaids would not attest to the artifact's authenticity. Oh, well, thank God. So despite the doubts of the naturalist, uh, Barnum (laughs) believed that the relic would draw the public to the museum. So Kimball remained the creature's owner while Barnum leased it from him for $12.50 a week. That's pretty good. That's not bad in those days. So the original object was exhibited by P.T. Barnum in Barnum's American Museum in New York in 1842, and then it disappeared. So it was assumed that it had been destroyed in one of Barnum's many fires that destroyed his collections. But that was the first appearance of the Fiji mermaid in the United States. Okay. Fiji mermaid, not a real mermaid. Hoax. (laughs) 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 All right, great. I love it. So duping Americans with weird creatures seems to be working. Of course. We got to talk about the Cardiff giant. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... This was around 1868 to 1870 in the U.S. So a 10-foot-tall, or 3-meter, purported petrified man was uncovered on October 16, 1869 by workers digging a well behind the barn of William C. Newell in Cardiff, New York. This is the Cardiff Giants in New York, yes. not Cardiff, Wales. I did know this because there's a display of it in the um, Farmer's Museum down in Cooperstown. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's really cool. That's anyway, neat. Please continue. So, New York tobacconist George Hall, he was an atheist. He decided to create the giant after an argument at a Methodist revival meeting about Genesis 6-4, which stated that there were giants who once lived on the earth. So, Hall hired men to carve out a 10-foot, 4.5-inch long block of gypsum 
in Fort Dodge, okay. Iowa, telling them that it was intended for a monument to Abraham Lincoln in New York. So he shipped the block to Chicago and he hired Edward Burghardt, a German stonecutter, to carve it into the likeness of a man and swore him to secrecy. So they added like various stains and acids to make the giant appear to be old and weathered. Um, and they beat the surface with steel knitting needles embedded in a board to stimulate pores. Okay. Oh my gosh. So in, uh, during November 1868, Hull transported the giant by railroad to the farm of his cousin, William Newell, in Cardiff, New York. And at that point, he had already spent like $2,600 for yeah. the hoax. So in $2015, this is the most recent number I saw, that's $46,000 adjusted for inflation. <laughs> that's such a He's petty. An atheist. <laughs> He's an atheist that's like, you know what? I got to prove these guys wrong. <laughs> All right. Such a petty thing. Like, oh, yeah, we got into a brief altercation about a Bible verse. That's it. I'm spending my life savings on this. I'm like, what? So, oh, man. So about a year later, Newell, the guy's cousin, um, hired Gideon Emmons and Henry Nichols to dig a well. And on October 16th, 1869, they found the giant. Newell set up a tent over the giant and charged 25 cents for people who wanted to come oh, see so he's it. trying to get his money back. Mm-hmm. And two <laughs> days later, he increased the price to 50 cents. But people still came by the wagon load. Wow. So there was a syndicate of five men headed by David Hannum who bought Hull's rights to the giant and moved it to Syracuse, New York Hey-o. for exhibition. Yes. So the giant drew such crowds that showman P.T. Barnum <laughs> offered $50,000 for the giant. And when the syndicate refused, he hired a man to model the giant's shape covered in wax and create a plaster replica. Yeah. So he displayed his giant in New York, claiming that his was the real giant and the Cardiff giant was fake. And that's, so- <laughs> that's why you should always, when P.T. Barnum offers you money, don't say no. Yeah, just because do if it. Because he, if he's not going to buy it from you, he's just going to make his own and claim that it it's out. the right one. And yep. he's more famous than you. So guess what? <laughs> just play his game. Yeah. Oh my so gosh. as the new p- newspapers reported Barnum's version of the story, oh, of course. David Hannum was quoted as saying, there's a sucker born every minute in reference to spectators oh. paying to see Barnum's giant. So since then, the quotation has often been misattributed to Barnum himself. So it's, okay. it was actually David Hannum that said it. And Hannum sued Barnum for calling his giant a fake, but the judge told him to get his, gi- you know, he he was like, well, you have to swear that your giant is real yeah. in court if he wanted yeah, it was a big it's mess. It's like, well, your thing's fake. No, your thing's fake. Well, we're I am both the real fakers, one. but I'm, we're not making any money doing this. But on December 10th, 1869, Hull confessed everything to the press. And on February 2nd, 1870, both giants were revealed as fakes in court. Oh, geez. Well, there you go. Cardiff giant. Not a real giant. It's a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a gun being like set up? I'm trying to do the... The Law and Order. Oh, oh, like boom, boom, like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like the, I like the, <laughs> or whatever you're doing, the small explosion. Um, yeah, there is a. I'm almost positive it's at the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown. If I'm wrong, I will put out a mea culpa. But um, it's it, they have like a replica of it, like in Great. a little coffin thing, and then like a couple of some Isn't wall there, text about it. The people were like, "Yes, this is not just a statue that was buried in yeah, the. It, it's this very must obviously be a petrified giant." <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh no, this is just some sculpture that was very poorly rendered. Yeah, yeah it's very weird. Okay. But what if we had a scientist that faked something that oh, he found? Oh. Here we have the Piltdown Man. 
Oh, I don't think I've ever heard of this. Okay. So in 1912 in England, uh, bone fragments were presented as the fossilized remains of a previously unknown early human. Uh Uh-oh. So the amateur archaeologist Charles Dawson claimed that he had discovered the missing link between ape and man. After finding a section of a human-like skull in the Pleistocene gravel beds near Piltdown, East Sussex, Dawson contacted Arthur Smith Woodward, the keeper of geology at the Natural History Museum. So Dawson and Smith Woodward discovered more bones and artifacts at the site, which they can Connected to the same individual. So these included a jawbone, skull fragments, a set of teeth, and primitive tools. So Smith Woodward, like the like this important guy, yep. reconstructed the skull fragments and hypothesized that they belonged to a human ancestor from 500,000 years ago. So the discovery was announced at the Geological Society meeting and given the Latin name Eanthropus Dasani, so Dawson's Dawn Man. Okay. And the questionable significance of the assemblage remained as the subject of considerable controversy until it was conclusively exposed in 1953 as a forgery. Wow. So it was found to have consisted of the altered mandible and some teeth of an orangutan deliberately combined with the cranium of a fully developed, though small-brained, modern human. So the Piltdown Man fraud significantly affected early research on human evolution. <gasps> yeah, because it, was, it wasn't <laughs> proved... Um, I was going to say 1950. What'd you say? 1953? 1953 is a forgery. So this is like, it's like 40 years yeah, of like a long when time. science is good. Science is getting good in the 20th <laughs> yeah. century. That's so not, it screwed up a lot of study. It screwed up a lot. So notably, it led scientists down a blind alley in the belief that the human brain expanded in size before the jaw had adapted to uh, new types of food. So discoveries of the Australopithecine fossils, such as the Tong child by Raymond Dart during the 1920s in South Africa, were ignored because support uh, for the Piltdown man was that he was the missing link. And reconstruction of human evolution was confused for decades. Wow. So the examination and debate over Piltdown man caused a vast expenditure of time and effort on the fossil with an estimated 250 papers written on the topic. And this fossil was also introduced as evidence by Clarence Darrow in defense of John Scopes during the 1925 Scopes monkey trial. Oh man. So what, what was with that guy? He, he wanted to be famous. He was probably like, you know, you know how archaeologists like when you're a student in like, archaeology co- in college yes. and you're going to be an archaeology major yeah, and you're like just dreaming of you're doing King Tut's tomb and you're finding like the lost ruins of Atlantis. Yeah. But really, you're just, you're just dusting rocks and garbage, sorting garbage. through rocks and oh, no, this is just another gum wrapper. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, that's true. He must he must he have must just, have been, just like, been like, forget this. Yeah. I'm going to make my own. Yep. But instead, he screwed up. Piltdown man messed up science for at least 40 years. Oh, my gosh. It's a hoax. (laughs) (laughs) I only think of Billy when you do that. (laughs) (laughs) And and finally, in this category, on a less impactful and much cuter note, we have the Cottingley Fairies in 1917 in England. So uh, these fairies appear in a series of five photographs taken by Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths, two young cousins who lived in Cottingley near Bradford in England. So in 1917, when the first two photographs were taken, Elsie was 16 and Frances was nine. The pictures came to the attention of writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who used them to illustrate an article on fairies that he had been commissioned to write for the Christmas 1920 edition of The Strand magazine. Doyle was a spiritualist and he was enthusiastic about the photographs and interpreted them as clear and visible 
reliable evidence of psychic phenomena. In the early 1980s, Elsie and Francis admitted that the photographs were faked using cardboard cutouts of fairies copied from a popular children's book of the time. And the photographs and two of the cameras they used are on display in the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, England. So if you've seen these pictures, it's very, they're very cute. Oh, like it's very early to have cameras too. Yep. And so people must have been like, oh my gosh. And they were like, there's there's been no tampering. Like there's no tampering with the negative. Yeah. There's no tampering with, and it's because they just, they literally just, just propped up cut pictures. And propped them up. Yeah. Yeah. And they're very, they are very beautiful and very sweet. Yeah. But we'll share a picture of this for sure. Let's be honest. Arthur Conan Doyle was a real, he was a gullible son of a bitch. <laughs> oh. I mean, God bless him, but he believed anything that passed before his eyes. Poor so, sweet pea. Those, those Cottingly fairies, Mobara hoax. Womp womp. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Literature. Oh, okay. Okay. Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography. Have you heard of this? I have not. So it was published uh, around 1887 to 1889. So it's the 19th century. You're trying to keep track of significant people whose last names aren't Washington and Jefferson. Absolutely. Um, and your boss is maybe up your ass to churn out some more words and pages. So you might get a little nervous. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? Yeah, I'm so nervous already. this Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography is one of the first and most definitive works of its kind in America. It contained biographical information about thousands of people, some famous, some obscure, in American history and was hailed as a valuable source of information for both scholars and students alike. It was widely accepted as authoritative for several decades. Later, the encyclopedia became notorious for including dozens of biographies of people who never existed. <gasps> so they were just kind of padding out this thing. So uh, especially I think it's like a lot of scientists never existed. Oh my God. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, um, Jasper yeah. Johannesson was a scientist who studied rocks in Wisconsin. Of course. In the in 1860s, he discovered a really big gray rock. <laughs> and then you're like flipping through and you're trying to find somebody in the biography and the article catches your eye. And you're like, ah, I wonder if there's more information about this guy. No. So um, to date, over 200 entries of fictitious people have been flagged. Oh, my gosh. And is this something that's... So when was this done? Um, it was, this was published like between 1887 and 1889. And this was just the work of like one writer or like a, a series of, of writers? People, a okay. bunch of writers all publishing this Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah. Like, all right. Some well. of those entries, hoaxes. Don't use that as, don't use that as a source for your next paper. Do not. Um, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Have you oh heard my of God, this? No, I haven't okay, heard so of this. This was first published in 1903. So this is a sinister hoax that pops oh. up and is widely distributed. So the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is an anti-Semitic fabricated text <gasps> purporting to describe a Jewish plan for global domination. Are you serious? So this forgery was first published in Russia in 1903 and translated into multiple languages and disseminated internationally oh in the early part of the 20th century. So according to claims made by some of the publishers, the Protocols are the minutes of a late 19th century meeting where Jewish leaders discussed their goal of global Jewish hegemony by subverting the morals of Gentiles oh and by controlling God. the press and the world's economies. Okay? That's horrifying. Yes. Henry Ford funded printing of, of 500,000 copies that were distributed throughout the United Ugh. States in the 1920s. The Nazis sometimes used the protocols as propaganda against Jews, and it was assigned by some German teachers as a factual to be read by German school children oh after the Nazis God. came to power in 1933, despite having been exposed as fraudulent by the Times of London in 1921. It is still widely available today <gasps> in numerous languages, in print and on the internet, and continues to be presented by some proponents as a genuine 
one document. Are you serious so about like, this? This is this is a bad hoax. No, this is no Some good. Some hoaxes are funny. Ha ha, ha look ha. at my fairies in my picture. No, this is very no. bad. Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Not real. Bad hoax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that deserved that. That deserved that noise. Wow, that's terrible. On a little bit of a lighter note, okay. uh, we have a made-up dictionary entry about a Maori drum that was widely accepted for decades. What? Okay, <laughs> here's why it's funny. So this word is spelled Z-Z-X-J-O-A-N-W. <laughs> That's not... What? <laughs> Does it have a pronunciation It's guide? pronounced Shaw. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. So Z-Z-X-J-O-A-N-W. This is a famous fictitious entry which fooled logologists, who are linguists or wordplay enthusiasts, oh, okay. for many years. So in 1903, author Rupert Hughes published The Musical Guide, an encyclopedia of classical music. And at the end of the dictionary, immediately following the entry for zimbel, which is the German word for symbol, Hughes added the following definition. Z-Z-X-J-O-A-N-W, pronounced Shaw, Maori. <laughs> One, drum. Two, fife. Three, conclusion. <laughs> the entry was retained when the book was republished under different titles in 1912 and 1939. No other Maori words appear in the dictionary. Oh, and my the gosh. suggested pronunciation of Shaw does not conform to the format of the dictionary's <laughs> own pronunciation guide. So he just like slipped this in there. It's like a college student who writes some bullshit as their title for their um, for their essay and then accidentally sends it to the professor yeah. with that title on it. Yep. He was just like, he was just goofing yep. around yeah oh my gosh I also um and we'll talk about this in a minute it's it's kind of like a copyright trap too because oh, if okay. then like you went and republished your own musical dictionary uh-huh. and you included this word after having no idea what this is or <laughs> yeah. what it could mean if he knew that he made it up he could come after you and be like you just co- all you did you was copy my it. work oh that's actually very clever yeah that's interesting so z-z-x-j-o-a-n-w shaw, shaw <laughs> is a hoax <laughs> All right. Have you heard of Naked Came the Stranger? Naked Came the Stranger. It sounds vaguely familiar okay. to me, but... So this is a hive mind uh, literary, like, test book. Okay. okay? So um, it's called Naked Came the Stranger. It was published by Penelope Ash in 1969. Okay. So Newsday columnist Mike McGrady was convinced that popular American literary culture had become so based that any book could succeed if enough sex was thrown in. Oh. So to test his theory, in 1966, McGrady recruited a team of Newsday colleagues... Um, it was about 19 men and 10 women to collaborate on a sexually explicit novel with no literary or social value whatsoever. <gasps> so the group wrote the book as a deliberately inconsistent hodgepodge with each chapter written by a different author. So some of the chapters had to be heavily edited because they were originally too well written. Uh, the book was submitted for, for publication under the pseudonym Penelope Ash. Okay. Um, she was portrayed by Billy Young, McGrady's own sister-in-law for photographs and meetings with publishers. So he had, he like basically oh, hired a sister-in-law to like go and be like, hi, I'm Penelope. You did the whole thing. And the cover is a kneeling nude woman with very long hair down her back photographed from behind. So like she's kneeling, you see her butt. Yeah. Her hair is long. It's very, you know. Very provocative. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. So here's the book's plot. Okay. Jillian and William Blake are the hosts of a popular New York City breakfast radio chat show, The Billy and Gilly Show, where they play the perfect couple. When Jillian finds out that her husband is having an affair, she decides to cheat on him with a variety of men from their Long Island neighborhood. Most of the book is taken up by vignettes describing Gilly's adventures with a variety of men from a progressive rabbi to a mobster crooner. So this book, like, did, like, it was 
It was an awful book. Had yeah. no value. It's terrible. All it was was sex, sex, sex. The cover was the, a naked woman. Yeah. And, you know, they put this out there and published it. And it was like a bestseller oh for my so gosh. long. Like he finally revealed like, no, oh, by the way, we did this. It was kind of like a joke. But you guys you totally bought it. Yep. Wow. Do you think that's um like the Fifty Shades of Grey? Do you think that's... <laughs> it's just like the second coming we're really uncovering this yeah it's we're not, really digging they just deep. hired that lady to do all the i read all the press oh my god i've read a single page of that it is horrible Awful. oh my god it's so bad yeah sorry everybody who loved 50 shades of gray but yeah, i don't think I don't i'm offending anybody, anybody. so <laughs> naked came the stranger is actually a hoax that's pretty good okay so the SoCal affair. Okay. Have you heard of this? No, so um, S-O-K-A-L. And this is Alan SoCal in 1996. So you know how academia's publisher perish. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the SoCal affair is a scholarly publishing sting perpetrated by Alan SoCal, a physics professor at New York University and University College London. So in 1996, SoCal submitted an article to Social Text, which is an academic journal of postmodern cultural studies. The submission was an experiment to test the journal's intellectual rigor and specifically to investigate whether a leading North American Journal of Cultural Studies would actually publish an article liberally salted with nonsense if A, it sounded good and B, it flattered the editor's ideological preconceptions. So the article is called Transgressing the Boundaries Toward a Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. Ugh, Ugh. Awful. Boring. Published in the social text in the spring-summer 1996 Science Wars issue, it proposed that quantum gravity is a social and linguistic construct. <laughs> At the time, this, the journal did not practice academic peer review, and it did not submit the article for outside expert review by Uh-oh. a physicist. So on the day of its publication in May 1996, SoCal revealed in Lingua Franca that the article was a hoax, and this sparked a debate about the scholarly merit of commentary about the physical sciences by those in the humanities. Yeah. The influence of postmodern philosophy on social disciplines, Jeez. academic ethics, including whether so-called was wrong to deceive the editors and readers of social text to begin with, and whether social text had done its due diligence oh, in man. publishing the article. He just so, stirred that pot. Yeah. Stirred it, stirred it. Yep. So that article is a good hoax. That's a pretty good hoax. Okay. Then the last the last literary one I wanted to talk about, um, the Voynich Manuscript. Yes. It's possibly a hoax. Yes. I'm going to lay out Please. A couple of different things. so interesting. So this might be from the 15th century. So I'm including this because it's very interesting, even if it's not what it purports to be. Yeah. So the Voynich Manuscript is an illustrated codex handwritten in an unknown writing system. The vellum on which it is written has been carbon dated to the early 15th century. Okay. So the manuscript is named after Wilfred Voynich, a Polish book dealer who purchased it in 1912. Some of the pages are missing. There's about 240 remaining. Okay. The text is written from left to right, and many of the pages have illustrations or diagrams. Some pages are foldable sheets. Many pages contain substantial drawings or charts which are colored with paint. And based on modern analysis using polarized light microscopy, it has been determined that a quill pen and iron gall ink were used for the text and figure outlines, and the color paint was applied somewhat crudely to the figures, probably at a later date. Okay. Parts of the text and drawings are modified using darker ink over a lighter, fainter script. And every page in the manuscript contains text, mostly in an unidentified language, though some have extraneous writing in Latin. 
feels very unlanguage-like. So the distribution of letters within words is very peculiar. Some characters occur only at the beginning of a word, while some are at the end, and some always in the middle. And the distribution of syllables, which is typically the same throughout a text, is weirdly skewed in the manuscript. And the manuscript doesn't have a single crossed out or scratched out word. And even uh-huh. the best scribes of the time have made errors. So if you have something that's um, in an unknown language or something uh-huh. that's like a code, yes, you're you're going to kind of see that you're going to kind of recognize, okay, this is a code. Like, yes, exactly. you know, even if it's, you know, especially in English, so E is the most common letter. Yeah. You're going to try to figure out, okay, which symbol appears the most common in exactly. this. Because then you might be able to deduce that that's, you know, the letter E or like single letters on their own. Okay, this might be the word A, this might be I, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So the Voynich manuscript has been studied by many professionals and amateur cryptographers, including American and British codebreakers from both World War I and World War II. No one has yet demonstrably deciphered the text, and it has become a famous case in the history of cryptography. So the unusual features of the Voynich manuscript text, including the doubled and tripled words and the suspicious contents of its illustrations, support the idea that the manuscript is a hoax. In other words, if no one is able to extract meaning from the book, then perhaps it's because the document contains no meaningful content. in the first place and various hoax theories have been proposed over time so um, in 2003 computer scientist Gordon Rugg showed that the text with characteristics similar to the Voynich manuscript could have been produced using a table of word prefixes stems and suffixes and in 2007 another study showed that the statistical probabilities of the manuscripts text were more consistent with meaningless gibberish than with Latin and medieval German texts Uh so basically as we get farther from the creation of the manuscript we may never know its true identity that's it's very really interesting. Weird. Like, yeah, I mean, and I did, I studied some paleography in undergrad. So that's mm-hmm. like the study of old words, basically, like yeah. old manuscripts. And yeah, I mean, even stuff that's, you know, that was used by churches or used yeah. for hundreds of years will have mistakes in it. You'll see people cross stuff out and, yeah. you know, there'll be a big ink block and, you know, they'll try to scratch it out, but you'll still be able to see that it's there. And so yeah. for this to be like, Completely mm-hmm. unblemished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the text itself, I find it like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like very unsettling. Yeah. Like it's it's not recognizable as any like symbols or code mm-hmm. or language or letters or anything like that. So to see it, they it's very, I don't know, it's very like unsettling. Right. And the images in it are really strange yes. as well. There's yeah. like... Um, plant drawings, like, but they're not plants of any kind that right. you've ever seen, and like animal drawings of like crazy right. Which looking is why animals. People are like, oh my gosh, we have to figure out what this is talking about. Yeah. But maybe it's maybe, maybe it's just it's not saying anything. Yeah, maybe it's just some guy from like 1905 who's like, you know what, I'm gonna do. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it'll be so funny. I am gonna sell this. I'm gonna sell this book. Yeah, this rare this book, book for a ton of money mm-hmm. to this German guy. Yeah, it's gonna be great. I can definitely see it that could, happening. It might be a hoax. I'm not calling it a hoax, but I'm leaning toward that. I, I'm okay with that. So uh, there are some other fictitious entries and copyright traps, like I mentioned with Shaw. Yes. <laughs> C-Z-X-J-O-A-N-W. Um, so fictitious entries are included as a humorous hoax or a copyright trap to, to reveal subsequent plagiarism or copyright infringement. Yeah. So there are a couple famous examples. There's one um, in the... Uh, 1975 New Columbia Encyclopedia, there is a fictitious biographical entry about Lillian Virginia Mount Weasel. <laughs> That's a great name. Yeah, it's a good name, but she didn't exist. That's there as a copyright trap. Okay. Um, Bitosu and Goblu 
are two non-existent Ohio towns in Fulton and Lucas counties, respectively. These were inserted into the 1978 to 1979 edition of the official state of Michigan map. So their names refer to the slogan of University of Michigan's fans, Go Blue, G-O-B-L-U, and a reference to their arch rivals from Ohio State University, Beat OSU, B-E-A-T-O-S-U. Okay. So that was there as a copyright trap. All right. Um, the trivia encyclopedia placed deliberately false information about the first name of TV detective Columbo for copyright <gasps> trap purposes and then sued Trivial Pursuit, which based some of their questions and answers on the work. Oh, yeah, they that's said that like they put in there that Columbo's first name was Peter or something, but like it was never revealed in, yeah. this, in the show. Yeah, because it was played. He was played by Peter Falk. Yeah. But Columbo never had a real name. Yeah. A first name, I should say. Yeah. A Christian name, as they say. Oh, uh, yes. So, yeah. So they were like, in well, your face. You got this information from us, clearly, because, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, in the latest one that I found in August 2005, the new Oxford American Dictionary gained media coverage when it was leaked that the second edition contained at least one fictional entry. This later was determined to be the word esquivalience. <gasps> I love it. E-S-Q-U-I-V-A-L-I-E-N-C-E. Esquivalience. Defined as the willful avoidance of one's official responsibilities. Which had been... Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that great? I'm going to spend the weekend doing esquivalience. Practicing esquivalience. (laughs) Yes. Then I practice esquivalience on a regular basis. On the reg. On the reg. Yeah. They added it to the edition published in 2001, and it was intended as a copyright trap since the book's text was distributed electronically and became easy to copy. Very smart. Yes. That's funny. That's all right. Aliens. My last segment. I know I'm going long, but... No, it's, it's fine. Fun, I don't mind at all. fun stuff. So uh, we're going to talk about some sports and competitions. So, Ooh, okay. So basically, uh, basically, oh. I'm calling it back to uh, one of my favorite movies, Dodgeball. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> No, this that's a great ESPN movie. ESPN8, the Ocho, <laughs> reporting to you live on several of the hoaxiest sports hoaxes. <laughs> so in the exciting world of chess, we have the Turk. The Turk? The Turk. Is this a person? No. <gasps> okay. Okay. Continue. So this was around the 18th and 19th century, also known as the Mechanical Turk or the Automaton Chess Player. <gasps> okay. So from 1770 until its destruction by fire in 1854, it was exhibited by various owners as an automaton, though it was eventually revealed to be an elaborate hoax. So constructed and unveiled in 1770 by Wolfgang von Kempelen to impress the Empress Maria Theresa of Austria, the mechanism appeared to be able to play a strong game of chess against a human opponent. It was also able to perform the knight's tour, which is a puzzle that requires the player to move a knight to occupy every square of a chessboard exactly once. The machine consisted of a life-size model of a human head and torso with a black beard and gray eyes dressed in ottoman robes and a turban that sounds awful its left arm held a long smoking pipe while at rest and its right arm lay on top of the large cabinet that measured about three and a half feet long two feet wide and two and a half feet high placed on top of the cabinet was a chessboard measuring 18 inches square the front of the cabinet consisted of three doors, an opening, and a drawer, which could be opened to reveal a red and white ivory chess set. The interior of the machine was very complicated and designed to mislead those who observed it. So the front was designed so that if the back doors of the cabinet were open at the same time, one could see through the machine. <gasps> Underneath the robes of the Turk model, two other doors were hidden, and these exposed clockwork machinery and provided a similarly unobstructed view through the machine. And the design allowed the presenter of the machine to open every available door to the public to maintain in the illusion. I have the a Turk guess. Turk was in fact a mechanical illusion that allowed a human chess master hiding inside yes, it to operate I knew the it machine. Was just a man in a box. 
It's just a man in a box. <laughs> what a great hoax, yeah. though, that they did the whole like. Oh, yeah. Kind of like, um, what's that? The crystal ball guy from Big, the machine. Oh, Zoltar? Yeah, Zoltan. 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 Uh, Something like that. Something like that. That's what I imagined him yeah. to look like. Like this very elaborate like person machine yeah. thing. Yeah. So um, the chessboard on top of the cabinet was thin enough to allow for magnets. Oh. So each piece in the chess set had a small strong magnet attached to the base. And when they were placed on the board, the pieces would attract a magnet inside attached to a string under the specific places on okay. the board. So the person inside the machine could see what pieces moved and then and they then could, just like they slide could it move around. them along too. So um, basically, with a skilled operator, the Turk won most of the games played during its demonstrations around Europe and the Americas for nearly eighty-four years, playing and defeating many challengers, including statesmen such as Napoleon Bonaparte and what? Benjamin Franklin. Get out of here! Yeah. Wow, he so, was famous. Yeah, it was destroyed in a fire in the 19th century, but there's enough like images remaining of it. That, oh my god! Like people have like built their own. Um, their own versions of it. It's oh, pretty cool to picture. see. Yeah. Yeah. We'll post a picture of that too. This will be a picture heavy episode. Yeah. So the Turk. It was a hoax. Oh boy. Mm. <laughs> All right. Have you, you, if you know the fastest woman alive, Rosie Ruiz. No. All right. Well, <laughs> Rosie Ruiz, uh, was a Cuban American runner who was declared the winner in the female category for the 84th Boston Marathon in 1980, only to have her title stripped eight days after the race. She is believed to have jumped onto the course about a half mile before the finish. <laughs> that's apparently like a common thing. Yes. Like that's how a lot of like these, these lot of super people fast that, marathoners, yep. they just, it's such an easy thing. Mm-hmm. They're just like, boop, here I am. Yep. Ah, oh my God, I'm so fast. Yeah. So on April 21st, 1980, Ruiz appeared to win the Boston Marathon's female category with a time of two hours, 31 minutes and 56 seconds. I don't know about you, but that sounds very fast That's to me. That's super fast. Okay. Yeah. So her time would have been the fastest female time in Boston Marathon history, as well as the third fastest female time ever recorded in any marathon. Oh my God. However, suspicions mounted about Ruiz from the beginning. Other runners noticed that Ruiz couldn't recall many things that most runners know by heart, such as intervals and splits. Sure. And when asked by a reporter why she didn't seem fatigued after the grueling race, she said... I got up with a lot of energy this morning. Oh, geez. No one of the runners could recall seeing her at many checkpoints along the course, and she did not appear in any pictures or video footage along the route. Yeah. Also, like, at that point, like, elite runners know one another. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not a huge community of, no. like, oh, thousands Someone's of runners. Someone's not just come out of nowhere and, like, beat yeah. your best time by, like, 15 minutes or exactly. something. Exactly, yeah. So it was later discovered that Rosie Ruiz rode the New York City subway during the New York City Marathon the previous year, which qualified her for the Boston Marathon. And it turns out she had also taken the MBTA subway oh in Boston gosh. in 1980. So if nothing else, it's a great advertisement for the public, for public transportation. transportation. <laughs> They're like, look at how you fast know what? I'm we not are. Sure they, yeah, I don't know if they took advantage of that. But Rosie Ruiz, uh, that was a hoax. That's a hoax, a bad hoax. Um, we got a Buffalo connection here to Woo! the first Asian hockey player in the NHL, Taro Suijimoto. I have never heard of this. <gasps> okay. It, this is one of my favorite Wikipedia entries of all time. Okay. Taro Suijimoto is an imaginary ice hockey player no. <laughs> who was the former draft pick by the National Hockey League's Buffalo Sabres, 183rd what? overall in the 11th round of the 1974 NHL draft. So when was this? An imaginary hockey player, 1974. Okay. So the Sabres general manager at the time, Punch Imlock, was yeah. reportedly fed up with the slow drafting process. 
but you did by the phone in those days. Yeah, yeah. So he decided to have some fun at the expense of the league, and he enlisted the Sabres PR director, Paul Whelan, to create a fictional player. So Imlock chose to select star center Taro Suijimoto of the oh Japanese gosh. Hockey League's t- Tokyo Katanas. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. The Tokyo Katanas? Oh, that's what a like buffalo saber. thing to do. That's like saber. I know. Yeah, it's that's- so good. <laughs> So the NHL made the pick official, and so it was reported by media outlets, including the Hockey News. So Suijimoto quickly became an inside joke for Sabres fans and staffers. And for years after the pick, fans would chant, we want tarot, when games at the (laughs) Buffalo Memorial Auditorium became one-sided. I'm sure Uh Kathleen knows all about this. Oh, yeah. Um, In addition, for many years, banners would be hung from the balcony rail, stating, tarot says, followed by a witty comment against an opponent or player from the opponent. Oh, that's pretty funny. That's like a funny, yeah. Fun hoax. Tarot Suijimoto, imaginary ice hockey player. And that's when the Sabres were pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, my last one. The guy that pitched the most insane fastball ever. Sid Finch. Yes. Yes. I read the the article from, I think it's Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. Um, They post it on long form every April 1st. It's a great article. If you haven't heard of Sid Finch, he is also a fictional player. He is a fictional baseball player, the subject of the notorious April Fool's Day hoax article, The Curious Case of Sid Finch, written by George Plimpton and first published in the April 1st, 1985 issue of Sports Illustrated. According to Plimpton, Finch was raised in an English orphanage, learned yoga in Tibet, and could throw a fastball as fast as 168 miles an hour. He also only wore one shoe when pitching, a heavy hiker's boot. So the story was released in late March 1985, and Mets fans were apparently overjoyed at their luck in finding such a player, and they flooded Aww. Sports Illustrated with requests for more information. Oh, that's sad. Okay, so the subhead of the article is so great. So the subhead of this article says, he's a pitcher, part yogi and part recluse, impressively liberated from our opulent lifestyle, Sid's deciding about yoga and his future in baseball. The first letters of each of these words spell out, Happy April Fool's Day, a fib. That's amazing. So despite this clue and the obvious absurdity of the article, many people believed Finch actually existed. And the magazine printed a much smaller article in the following issue announcing his retirement. (laughs) And then it was announced as a hoax on April 15th. It's a great article. It's like beautifully written, really. And the first time I read it, I didn't realize it was an April Fool's thing. Like, because, you know, who's paying attention on April 1st? Um, It was quite a few years ago. And I was like, this is actually like so beautiful. And they talk about how his wind up and like the way he throws was so weird. Yeah. Like he would like launch his arm over his head and like directly in front of him. With his one. With his one shoe. Yeah. It's a really good article. We should post that. Yeah, we'll link to that, too. So Sid Finch. Not real. So if like your uncle's joking about something and mentions him in conversation, you. Not a real person. Not a real person. Yeah. All right. That was it. it. I promise. That was it. Oh, no. Those are so good. I love hoaxes. (laughs) Me too. You know what? You could probably make this a... Because I have a couple of of, like running things. Great. This could be your thing. I think that's a good idea. Wonderful. There's plenty of hoaxes out there. There sure are. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Thank you, Julia. That was great. So my quiz is called Believe It or Not. A quiz on the life and times of P.T. Barnum and Robert Ripley. Question one. When Phineas Taylor Barnum comes to mind, you probably don't picture him in local politics. But from 1875 to 1876, Barnum served as the mayor of what historic Connecticut seaport city, which today is the largest city in Connecticut and also the birthplace of the Frisbee? Question two. 
Robert Ripley's first cartoon series, Champs and Chumps, premiered in 1918 in the New York Globe. After Ripley started adding feats unrelated to sports, he changed the title of his cartoon to Believe It or Not in 1919. At the time, the New York Globe was the oldest daily newspaper in the U.S., descending from the 1793 American Minerva newspaper founded by which Federalist, lexicographer, textbook pioneer, and English language spelling reformer. Question three. Here's a multiple choice. In 1871, Barnum established P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome, which soon became billed as the greatest show on earth. Quick, what's a hippodrome? Is it A, one dozen hippopotamuses, B, a horse race track, C, a large spherical cage that could be rolled across the center ring of a three-ring circus, or D, an animal fighting arena? Question four. Robert Ripley was instrumental in reminding America that they had no official national anthem when he published a panel saying as much in his syndicated cartoon in November 1929. Which president signed the bill on March 4th, 1931, officially adopting the Star-Spangled Banner as the national anthem of the USA? Question five. Also called the Swedish Nightingale, which famous 19th century Swedish soprano toured America for two years after being persuaded and generously compensated by P.T. Barnum? Question 6. On April 14, 1930, Ripley brought his popular Believe It or Not cartoon strip to radio. I'm going to name three situations and you tell me if Robert Ripley ever recorded a live radio show in that manner. First, underwater. Second, from a falling parachute in the sky. And third, from Antarctica. Question seven. Though P.T. Barnum had no qualms about using hoaxes or humbugs to entertain audiences, he was contemptuous of those who fraudulently deceived the public. One of the subjects of his ire was spirit photographer William H. Mumler. Mumler's most famous spirit photograph shows which 19th century American power couple, who notably went on a date to the theater together, though only one half returned home to their big white house alive. Question eight. In 1937, Ripley published a fan-submitted cartoon from a teenager nicknamed Sparky, whose dog Spike was a hunting dog who eats pins, tacks, screws, nails, and razor blades. This was the first formal publication of artwork by what future prolific cartoonist? Question 9. P.T. Barnum, a trustee of Tufts College in Medford, Massachusetts, also donated a significant gift to the college to establish a museum and hall for the school's Department of Natural History. By the late 1880s, Barnum had also given Tufts the taxidermied hide of which male African bush elephant, which has also given us the nickname for their sports teams and university mascot. And finally, question 10. When Ripley first displayed his collection to the public at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933, it was labeled Ripley's Auditorium and attracted over 2 million visitors during the run of the fair. In 1950, a year after Ripley's death, the first permanent auditorium opened in which northeastern Florida city, the oldest continuously occupied European established settlement within the borders of the continental United States? We'll give you about a minute to think and we'll be back with your answers.
That was a lot of information. And you know what? The RMSC just did an exhibit on Ripley's <laughs> and I had to give tours about mm-hmm. it. And I do not remember as much about Ripley as I thought I did. You'll be fine, I think. It'll be fine. I think you'll be fine. Well, thank you. That's I, I appreciate your belief in me. Yes. All okay. Right. <clears throat> Question one. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Hit me. Uh, when P.T. Barnum comes to mind, you probably don't picture him in local politics. But from 1875 to 1876, he served as the mayor of what historic Connecticut seaport city, which today is the largest city in Connecticut and also the birthplace of the Frisbee? I was going to say Mystic. But then you said it was the largest seaport. Mm-hmm. I mean, the largest The largest city, city in Connecticut. And, and then I was trying to think of other cities in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And then I thought of Hartford. Okay. Which, but I don't think that's a that's seaport. The capital. Yeah. Yeah. It's inland. So I'm going to go with Mystic, even though I know I'm wrong. Okay. It's Bridgeport. Bridgeport. The other city. The other, the other, the other city, city in Connecticut. Connecticut. It's not that big of a state. <laughs> so um, uh, Barnum was elected in 1875 as the mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut, where he worked to improve the water supply, bring gaslighting to streets, wow. and enforce liquor and prostitution laws. <laughs> he was also instrumental in starting Bridgeport Hospital and was its first president. There. Good for him. So thumbs up to Barnum there. Question two. Uh, Robert Ripley's first cartoon series premiered in the New York Globe. Um, So at the time, the New York Globe was the oldest daily newspaper in the U.S., descending from the 1793 American Minerva newspaper, founded by which Federalist lexicographer, textbook pioneer, and English language spelling reformer? I don't know. Daniel Webster? It's Noah Webster. Noah Webster. You just got to say Webster. Oh, sure. Just Webster. Webster. My answer is Webster. Final answer. So Noah Webster, the father of American scholarship and education. His blue-backed speller books taught five generations of American children how to spell and read. And Webster's name has basically become synonymous with dictionary in the U.S. Question three. Here's a multiple choice. In 1871, Barnum established P.T. Barnum's Grand Traveling Museum, Menagerie, Caravan, and Hippodrome, which soon became billed as the greatest show on earth. Quick, what's a hippodrome? Is it A, one dozen hippopotamuses, B, a horse race track, C, a large spherical cage that could be rolled across the center ring of a three-ring circus, or D, an animal fighting arena? Um, I know it's not a, I know it's not a dozen hippos. Okay. And I know it's not an animal fighting arena. Uh Uh-huh. So I'm going to go with horse track. It is a yes. horse racetrack. Um, hippos is the Greek root word for horse. Great. And dromos is Greek for course. Great. So it's basically horse course. a horse course. <laughs> yep. Question four. Robert Ripley was instrumental in reminding America that they had no official national anthem when he published a panel saying as much in his syndicated yes. cartoon in November 1929. Which president signed the bill on March 4th, 1931, officially adopting the Star Spangled Banner as the national anthem of the USA? <sighs> March 4th, 1931. I know. <laughs> Look, I'm the early. Okay. Uh, FDR. Back farther. Calvin Coolidge. Farther forward. forward. Oof. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm making you joke on your wine. Uh, I got nobody Hoover. in between. Oh, Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover. Damn it. Um, he was president. <laughs> on March 4th, 1931. Uh-huh. So despite the widespread belief that the Star Spangled Banner with its lyrics by Francis Scott Key set to the music of the English drinking song to Anacreon in Heaven yep. was the United States National Anthem, Congress had never officially made it so. And in 1931, John Philip Sousa published his opinion in favor of giving the song official status, stating that it is the spirit of the music that inspires as much it is as it is Key's soul-stirring words. Ugh. So by a law signed on March 3rd, 1931 by Herbert Hoover, the Star-Spangled Banner was adopted as the national anthem of yep. the United States. 
I did know that fact. Yeah. I just could not remember yeah, that Ripley it was, was old like, Hoovy. Hey, psst, by the way, <laughs> we don't have a national anthem. And people were outraged. Yeah. They what were like, mean? what are you talking about? What do you mean? Question five. Also called the Swedish Nightingale, which famous 19th century Swedish soprano toured America for two years after being persuaded and generously compensated by P.T. Barnum? I, I don't know. The only opera singer I can think of is Maria Callas, okay. and she is more modern. The Swedish Nightingale is Jenny Lind. Jenny Lind. Why do I know about Jenny Lind? Someone mentioned she Jenny Lind Swedish today. Swedish Nightingale. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think she played here in Rochester. I think she did too. Um, at that theater that burned down where Frederick Douglass, it's called, it'll come to me. Yeah. Um, but Frederick Douglass also spoke mm-hmm. there and she performed there and it was like a big deal and that burned down, I think, in the uh, mid-20th yeah. century. So yeah. she was a big singer over mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, P.G. Barnum was like, no, man, you got to come to America. I'll yeah. pay you. So Lynn accepted his offer of $1,000 a night plus expenses Shit. for up to 150 concerts in the United States. Wow. She also insisted on the services of uh, a German conductor, composer, and pianist with whom she had worked in England and of the Italian baritone Giovanni Belletti as assisting artists since solo recitals were still unknown to American audiences. Ooh. So Benedict's fee, Benedict is the, the um, German conductor, uh, Benedict's fee was twenty. $25,000 and Belletti's fee was $12,500. So all told, Barnum committed to $187,500 to bring Lind and her musical troupe to America. In today's money, that's five and a half million dollars. <gasps> the man was so, he, he was, was so, so rich. fling and yeah. fling and rich, like richer than anything. Yeah. So she toured America from 1850 to 1852. And the tour is a plot point in the 1980 musical Barnum and the 2017 film The Greatest Showman, both of which include a fictionalized relationship between Lind and Barnum with romantic undertones. So if you've seen that movie. Um, The the theater where she sang and also where Frederick Douglass Uh um, spoke, it was called Corinthian Hall in Rochester. Neat. Yeah. Lots of famous folks. Question six. On April 14th, 1930, Ripley brought his popular, believe it or not, cartoon strip to radio. I'm going to name three situations and you tell me if Robert Ripley ever recorded a live radio show in that manner. Okay. Ready? I can can do this. First, underwater. Yes. Yes. (sighs) Yes. Second, from a falling parachute in the sky. Uh, no. Yes. Oh, oh. He did. From a falling parachute in the sky. Okay, so he did. He did. Okay. Yes. So I got that one wrong. You got that one wrong. I'm sorry. It's okay. Correct. Incorrect. That's probably better. I know we have a hard time. Um, with that. And third, from Antarctica. Uh, yes. No. <gasps> Sorry, uh. he didn't go to Antarctica. So, according to Ripley's, he was the first in the world to broadcast a radio show from underwater, a falling parachute from underground, from Australia to the U.S., from South America to the U.S., and wow. from London, England, to every country in the world simultaneously using wow. a team of translators. Oh, crazy. That's cool. So funding for Ripley's travels around the world were provided by the Hearst organization, and he recorded live radio shows from every situation in which he could imagine. So, yeah, pretty. Also from like snake pits and like yeah, caves. A- every possible yeah, other iteration. Coming to you live from. And how would anybody know? Like yeah. what if right now we're like coming to you live from the top of the Empire State Building. Yeah. Coming to you live from underwater. We've got breathing apparatuses on. See, Julie, see, hear all that bubbles? Yeah, no one knows. He could have been like safely ensconced in his living room the entire time. No one knows. <laughs> I like it. 
Question seven. Though P.T. Barnum had no qualms about using hoaxes or humbugs to entertain audiences, he was contemptuous of those who fraudulently deceived the public. Um, so one of his uh, one of the people he hated was William H. Mumler, whose most famous spirit photograph shows which 19th century American power couple who notably went on a date to the theater together, the only one half returned home to their big white house alive. Oh, that's the Lincolns. It is the Lincolns. Yeah. Yes. So Barnum, um, he claimed that Mumler was taking advantage of people whose judgments were clouded by grief. And he did yes. not like this. Like, yeah. he was like, people are coming to my shows. Like, you know, they, they want to have fun. They, they want to have a good time. There's a little bit of, you know, yeah. this mermaid might not be real. Yeah. But, we're all um, playing the same game. But he, but he didn't like what Mumler, people like Mumler no. was doing. So um, he actually, he hated him. And he testified <laughs> against him at his 1869 trial for fraud, even fabricating a spirit photo of himself with Abe Lincoln <gasps> as evidence to show how easy it was to forge spirit photographs. Good for him. Yeah. So though frequently called the Prince of Humbugs, Barnum saw nothing wrong in entertainers or vendors using hoaxes and promotional material as long as the public was getting value for their money. Exactly. But he disliked mediums and folks like Mumler who took advantage of bereaved people and he frequently shared the tricks of the trades used by mediums so people didn't like that yeah and in his 1865 book the humbugs of the world he offered 500 dollars to any medium who could prove power to communicate with the dead and he never paid out of course not Mm -hmm. Hmm. that's very interesting question eight uh, in 1937, Ripley published a fan-submitted cartoon from a teenager nicknamed Sparky, whose dog Spike was a hunting dog who eats pins, tacks, screws, nails, and razor blades. This was the first formal publication of artwork by what future prolific cartoonist? Uh, I'm going to say Charles Schultz. It is Charles Woo! Schultz. Woo! Um, his dog Spike later became the model for Peanuts Snoopy. Oh. Question nine, P.T. Barnum, trustee of Tufts College, donated a significant gift to the college to establish a museum and hall for the school's Department of Natural History. By the late 1880s, Barnum had also given Tufts the taxidermied hide of which male African bush elephant, which has also given us the nickname for their sports teams and university mascot. The uh, Honestly, the only two elephant names that I can think of are Dumbo and Tiny. What rhymes with Dumbo? Jumbo. Jumbo! Jumbo! (laughs) Okay, great. So love it. Jumbo was born in Sudan, exported to a zoo in Paris, and then transferred in 1865 to London Zoo in England. Despite public protests, Jumbo was sold to P.T. Barnum, who took him to the U.S. for exhibition in March 1882. In New York, Barnum exhibited the elephant at Madison Square Garden, earning enough in three weeks from the enormous crowds to recoup the money he spent to buy the animal. Uh, In the 31-week season, the circus earned $1.75 million, largely due to its star attraction. Get out of here. So do you know how Jumbo died? Do I want to know? Jumbo died after being hit by a freight train at no. a rail yard in Ontario in oh 1885. Oh, that's a terrible way for an elephant <sighs> yeah, to it's go. Not, no, yeah. Jumbo had a tough life. Um, Barnum had portions of his star attraction separated to have oh multiple God. sites attracting curious spectators. Oh so after God. touring with Barnum Circus, the skeleton was donated to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. The elephant's heart was sold to Cornell University, and Jumbo's hide was stuffed, stretched, and mounted, and the specimen traveled with Barnum Circus for two years. He eventually donated the stuffed Jumbo to Tufts, where it was displayed at P.T. Barnum Hall for many years. And because of the relationship between Barnum and Tufts, Jumbo the elephant became the school's mascot, and Tufts students are known as Jumbos. The hide was destroyed in a fire in April of 1975, and ashes from that fire, which are believed to contain the elephant's remains, are kept in a 14-ounce Peter Pan crunchy peanut butter jar in the office 
of the Tufts athletic director. Oh my God. And his taxidermy tail, which had been removed during earlier renovations, resides in the holdings of the Tufts digital collections and archives. I have never had to come across a taxidermy oh, elephant tail in my archives I collection. Wish. But oh my goodness. That's sad. That's this whole sad thing. <laughs> the Tufts jumbo. Oh, jumbo. <laughs> Poor guy. And then finally. Basically, question 10. In 1950, a year after Ripley's death, the first permanent auditorium opened in which northeastern Florida city, the oldest continuously occupied European established settlement within the borders of the continental United States. Okay. So uh, um, the only city that I can think of in northeastern Florida uh-huh. is St. Augustine. It is St. Augustine. Yes, St. Augustine. It's a beautiful city, honestly. It sure is. Yeah. That's one of my earliest memories is being in yeah. St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. So um, the Ripley collection includes 20,000 photographs, 30,000 artifacts, and more than 100,000 cartoon panels. Um, at the Chicago World's Fair, which was like his first big exposition, in an apparent promotional gimmick, beds were provided in the auditorium for people who fainted daily. Oh, and that successful exhibition led to trailer shows across the country during the 1930s, where Ripley Ripley's collections were exhibited at many fairs and expositions. As of 2018, there are 30 Ripley's, believe it or not, auditoriums around the world and also dozens more mirror mazes, golf courses, train tours, haunted houses, and other attractions in 11 countries worldwide. And it's owned by, it was, um, it was owned by a private, uh, a member of the Ripley's family for a very long yeah. time. And then it was sold. And now I think to, it's like an entertainment group. Uh, no, it's actually, it's a private owner who lives in Canada. Oh, like cool. the Ripley's, all the Ripley's stuff is like, do, is like done by a private oh, neat. company owned by a single person in Canada. Um, so it's technically a Canadian company now. And I only oh, know this because the science of Ripley's, believe yeah. it or not, came from no, Science cool. North, which is a Canadian company. Cool. So, so there you go. Well, believe it or not. <laughs> That was good. Thank you, Julia. That was very entertaining. We loved it. Great. If you want to talk to us, yeah. I guess, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at misinfopod. You can find us on Facebook, Misinformation, a trivia podcast. And we have a website, www.missinfopod.com. On our website, you can also stream us. Um, And also, you can get us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or use our RSS feed for any podcast app that you prefer. Uh, Please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell a friend. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, let us know if if there's any topics you want to hear about. Let us know if you got any listener-submitted trivia that you want to give us. You know you want to hear us sing that little jingle. Oh, it's so good. Remix. Um. No, I'm not going to do that right now. So uh, thanks for sticking with us, guys. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.